Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 138 for April 3rd, 2008. Listener feedback number 38. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by listeners like you. Thanks for your donations. It's time for Security Now. Everybody's favorite security podcast it is mine anyway, because it stars the great, the one, the only Steve Gibson, the man who discovered <laughs> spyware. What? What are you laughing it's, at? It's definitely my favorite security yeah. podcast. Well, it's my only security podcast. That's why I'd have to like it. But I would anyway. Steve is an expert at making stuff unintelligible. Uh, but, but, and I'm proud of this, we never dumb it down. And uh, and that's one of the reasons we offer, you know, written transcripts and, <laughs> you know. No, and, and, and in fact, I, I, I'm a real believer that that if something is, if someone understands something and is able to communicate it, it really does not need to be made no. simple. I mean, I, I think, you know, last week we talked about static and dynamic RAM, and I would imagine that everybody listening kind of enjoyed understanding if they didn't already know what is static about static RAM and what is dynamic about dynamic RAM and and how that stuff works. And, you know, there's no need to dumb it down if it's it's explained correctly. I I made my living assuming people are intelligent, and I prefer to do it that way. A lot of broadcasting doesn't assume it. It assumes the worst. I like to assume the best. And, you know, it's self-selecting. I mean, if you listen to this show, you're obviously a smart person. Uh, and, uh, but that's fine. I'm really happy just talking to people who, uh, who get it and want to get it and, and care enough to figure it out. And I know this is a challenging, it's certainly the most challenging show we do on the network. Uh, but that's part of the fun of it. Your yep. brain grows when you listen. Uh, we are going to talk today. Actually, we're going to do listener feedback. We're going to answer your questions. So it means we'll talk about at least a dozen different topics, which will be a lot of fun. And you mentioned last week you wanted to talk about the paper enigma machine. I want to get I want to get to that in a second, but first let me give a plug to our folks at Astaro because they are the sponsors of Security Now. Without them, there would well, there'd probably still be a show, but but we'd be doing it for free. <laughs> we'd be eating the costs. Let's somewhat, put it that way. Somewhat less enthusiastic. Yeah, <laughs> we're we're very enthusiastic now that we're getting paid thanks to Astaro. And uh, boy, Astaro is doing great. I'm very proud of them. I I don't I don't want to take any credit for the. For the success, but boy, your Staro is now the premier security gateway out there, especially with V7. Um, they have protection for you in every possible realm. You, of course, you get you know what you'd expect, which is a, a very powerful stateful inspection firewall, but you also get intrusion detection. Um, you get web three kinds of antivirus: two for the web, one for email. Automatically updated with their very well-known Astaro up-to-date, which keeps you constantly up-to-date. The Security Gateway does a lot more, too. I mean, it does encryption. It does SSL VPN. I mean, just a ton of stuff. And now they've got, uh, I'm really, they just announced this at the uh, RSA conference a couple of weeks ago, the Astaro Web Gateway hardware appliance. It's a performance-optimized server equipment that en- enables you to plug-and-play protection for your net. You get malware detection. 
uh, fast and accurate scanning for viruses, spyware, active content. You know, that's really a prime vector now is this is these exploits on web pages. This protects you against them. Uh, two different scan engines there. It also does bandwidth management, application control. You control what your users are doing, including peer-to-peer and instant messaging. And of course, 60 easy-to-navigate categories, giving you the ultimate in URL filtering so you make sure your employees are working when they're at work. You get absolute control with this. Um, you, you're just going to be impressed with Staro and how it works their incredible model, you know, they use both open source and commercial software. You can install the the, the uh, web gateway as either hardware or virtual appliance. If you want to provide your own hardware, this is a great solution. And by the way, uh, non-commercial end users can also uh, install Astaro for free. Go to astaro.com slash security now, put it on your beige box. And it includes all the up-to-date subscriptions and everything. I mean, it's really remarkable. Scales beautifully up to 10 Different Astaro security gateways if you need the if you're growing fast. Find out how Astaro can work in your enterprise. Call 877-4-Astaro for a demo in your business. 877-427-8276. Absolutely free. 877-427-8276. A-S-T-A-R-O dot com. Thank them so much for their support. And they con- wish them such continued success. They're, they're really the good guys in security. Astaro. So, um, you want to talk about the paper enigma machine first? Cause this is so cool. Yeah. Just very quickly. I just thought it, I, I ran across it. Um, Bruce Schneier was blogging about it, um, this week and I thought, Oh, that's kind of an interesting. Yeah. So I followed, I followed the link and it's to a, a really interesting, simple zero cost implementation of sort of a reduced capability, but still functional enigma machine, the enigma, the enigma cipher machine used by, Germany during um, the World War II. Um, the story of think, Enigma is, a, is really a significant story. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, uh, you know, th- this is just something that you can, they have, they have a PDF you can download, which you then print onto cardstock. And, you know, using uh, uh, scissors and, and glue and, and, and cut some slots and make some strips, you're able to really get a sense for how it works. So uh, I remember it was was it Alan Turing who uh, broke the Enigma machine? Yes, uh, Turing working at I think it was uh, Bletchley. Ben, yeah, Bletch, Bletchley. There's yeah. always an L in there. I'm not sure where yeah. it goes. Bletchley Labs. Yes, yeah, in Britain. And this was, I mean, the, the, the Germans were able to use Enigma to really harass uh, British shipping with their submarines. Um, once it was cracked, it, compl- it it may have been one of the keys to winning World War II. I mean, it was a significant. Yep. Significant. Yep. And, and people never thought they'd crack it. It's so cool that you can make one. It was the, they were beautiful. They were wooden boxes with gears and cogs and a typewriter on it. I mean, it was really quite a, a, a clever, interesting device. Well, and so what people can do is uh, you and I have links to it on our respective show notes. They can also just simply Google Paper Enigma Machine. That's E N I G M A. Paper Enigma machine. It'll the first link there takes you right to this page. It's also worth noting that there there's a link in the about the middle of the top of that page to an Enigma simulator. It's a software simulator that runs under Windows or under Wine under Linux, which is is a complete 
emulation of a whole bunch of different Enigma machines. It, it was just been, it was beautifully put together. Oh, so if anyone is sort of curious about this and wants to play with it, either either you know just print out paper and uh, and and get a real intuitive sense. I mean, a, a real understanding of of how that works. Yeah, and I notice it's math classes that do it, and I think that that's really one of the neat things. To bring both math and history to life, I just think it's a really neat solution. So, Yeah. Yeah, very cool. So uh, today, Q&A, yes? Q&A, yes. I don't have any errata nor security information since we're recording this on the heels of last week's episode, because as people are listening to this, you're in Australia taking pictures of things. I'm in Tasmania, mate. I'm taking pictures <laughs> of the Tasmanian devil and the uh, Tasmanian tiger. Uh, in my uh, in my eternal search for uh, new and different Spinrite data recovery stories, uh, I had something wacky that I thought I would share with our listeners. Uh, Steve Hall wrote uh, with a subject: "Thanks to Spinrite, my daughter can read better." What? What? And he says, "He says hi, Steve. I just wanted to say thank you for making such a fine program." <clears throat> Recently, my father gave me a hand-me-down computer since he was replacing it. The reason he was replacing it is due to the fact that during an act of Windows-induced frustration, (laughs) okay, I kid you not, during an act of Windows-induced frustration, he decided to give the computer some flying lessons. Oh, I can believe that. From the second floor to the first floor. Oh, no. He threw it out the window? I guess he downstairs. I think downstairs, because there's a reference here to his his pergo flooring. Oh, man. (laughs) From from the second floor to the first floor of his house. Well, after a new motherboard and some replacement sections of his pergo floor... I had it up and running in no time, keeping the old original hard drive, which, okay, I I don't think I would ever use a machine whose hard drive had gone down a story. Um, But he says, I kept the Windows XP that was running on it and gave the computer to my four-year-old daughter to run her Hooked on Phonics game. She loves it and uses it daily until it stopped booting up. Oh, not surprisingly, I mean the the drive, the drive probably had loose bits. Oh, can you imagine what happened inside. to the drive? Yeah, I mean he says, that's the worst thing you could do to drive, right? Is a, is impact? Oh yes, yes, yes. You're literally you're, you're bouncing the heads on the surface. Now it's way worse if it's spinning. So presumably, Dad unplugged the computer during his fit of peak with it, or his peak of peak. The peak of his peak, uh, and before throwing it downstairs, so the platter, the heads would have pulled off the platters. They go into the center near the spindle, where uh, as the platters vibrate, there's less vibration in the center where the drive is anchored. They the, mo- normally that that's what heads do. They used to get pulled off of the platters completely and and, and parked. Um, right, away right. from the disc, but now they just slide into the center where they're they're safe. And they generally there's like an electromechanical me- mechanism. A little hook comes out that oh, locks. Oh, I had no the idea. Head. They park the, it. Yeah, they they park in the center. And the reason they go into the center, not only do you have much less motion if the discs are are vibrating because they're anchored in the center, but also. It helps with a stiction problem. When, when the motor starts up, naturally the the heads, which are resting on the surface, they can be a little sticky. Yeah. And so you'd like to have 
them in the center where they has, have less mechanical advantage in preventing the disc from spinning than if they were resting out on the outer edge where they have a very strong mechanical advantage to keep the disc from spinning. So all of that goes on anyway. So I had no idea. Just, and it goes on in, in, in milliseconds, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. The, the, the moment you power down, the heads are, are snapped into the center and, and are, are, you know, rest there until you power back up again. Wow. And he says, so he says, suddenly it no longer booted up. It's like, yeah, no kidding. Uh, but instead displayed a message that it could no longer locate some key Windows files. Like I said, those Windows files were off of the edge of the drive somewhere. Um, he says, I also know that the drivers for the very old Netgear wireless card are nearly impossible to locate now. Being a loyal Security Now listener, I was pretty sure Spinrite would fix it. Okay, he's a <laughs> he's a faithful Security wow, Now. Wow, that's great. Okay. Uh, listener. Mm-hmm. So I decided to bite the bullet and purchase me a copy. Okay. After 12 after 12 hours of clunking away and many recovered sectors, uh-huh. Spinrite recovered the computer what? and it once again, it once again boots up. The computer that went down two stories, it recovered. Yeah. Wow. He says, I certainly am a satisfied customer and will always recommend Spinrite to many happy daughters everywhere. Now, do yeah, here's the question. Do you recommend this? No. <laughs> See, no. he's an honest guy. I love this about you. Uh, there are a lot of people who said, oh, yes, absolutely. No matter what, Spinrite. But once a drive has gone down the stairs... Probably yeah. not worth trying to recover. Yeah. I uh, no, I mean that kind of physical damage is. I mean, it's. I, I'm glad that Spinrite was able to recover. I've I've get seen, your data off it now. I, I, I've seen pictures of of literally barbecued uh, hard drives that survived <laughs> fires. That uh, that our listeners tell us Spinrite was able to get the drive back up again enough that they were able to copy data off it. I mean, they looked like it had been in a charcoal. Uh, yeah. At the bottom of a charcoal pit. But, but the new drive is cheap. Copy the data off. Don't trust that drive now. Yeah. 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 But, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's, uh, he's Impressive. been able to keep it going. So what the hell? Impr- I'm impressed. Yep. I am impressed. Uh, all right. Let's see. Should we get to our questions? You betcha. We'll start with number one. We've got 12 goodens. Fred Zanegood in Orlando, Florida. He wants a free Audible podcast. Well, I don't blame you. Actually, there are free. If you go to audible.com, this is not an ad for Audible. I just want to mention they do have free stuff. In fact, they do a lot of pro bono stuff, things like uh, debates, speeches, State of the Union, that kind of thing. Um, I I haven't seen a lot this year. I wonder if they stopped doing that, but they always have in the past. uh, They've done a lot of pro bono things. So there are a lot of free things on audible.com. But he says, just thought you'd like to know that the audiblepodcast.com slash security now URL, which we use all the time. Doesn't work, he says. Huh? I thought it may have been an open DNS problem, but after putting it on my whitelist, it still doesn't work. Have you guys tried it or heard of others experiencing similar problems with the URL? I'm using Firefox. Love the show. Love spin, right? Thanks, Leo. Zach, Steve. Well, it worked for me. Does it work for you, Steve? Works for me perfectly. Uh, The first thing I did was put it in. I did notice, however, that it immediately jumps around a little bit there's well don't say the other url here's what's going on (laughs) i don't want people to go to the other url it does redirect but the point is they're counting how many people go to security now yeah and that's a good thing but it may be the redirection that that is causing fred the problem well let me let let me tell fred first of all that it doesn't matter uh while we like it to be counted uh they don't pay us 
by number of acquisitions or anything. So, I mean, it's not like we'll get less money, but we do, you know, we just want to, we want, they want to know, and we want them to know how many people come to them from each different show. That's all. Exactly. So what happens is it is doing a redirect, meaning that when he he, he puts that in, the, the there's actually a website at audiblepodcast.com which sees that he's, he's trying to reference the page security now. It gives the browser back a new URL right. which call, called a redirect, which the browser then follows, all things being equal. However, there have been some shenanigans played in the past with redirection of, of a security nature. And there's sort of a it sort of generally makes people feel I mean, really security conscious people feel a little uncomfortable. It's like, wait a minute, I put this URL right, in right. because because I trust it. I don't want to be bounced somewhere else. And in fact, we've talked about some sort of shady goings on with redirection, where, for example, links at at PayPal are actually double click links, which take you to double click right. and then redirect you back to PayPal. Well, this all so, goes through Audible, I should tell you. It's not. Yes, there's nothing exactly. There's nothing sh- shady going on there. But as a consequence of the fact that it had that redirection of URLs has been abused in the past and the fact that Fred mentions he's using Firefox, which tends to be a security conscious browser, and that Firefox has all kinds of add-ons, it may just be his security. Oh, blocking it. We, exactly. Yeah. Some, he, may, he may have redirects disabled. He may be using an add-on. He, he mentioned whitelisting it. I don't know if he was talking about whitelisting through OpenDNS because he, and his, he says, I thought it may have been an OpenDNS problem, but after putting it on my whitelist, it still doesn't work. So that sounds like maybe something whitelisting externally. He may have to tell his browser that AudiblePodcast, com is an okay website and to allow redirections from it to uh, the Audible uh, URL that, um, yeah, that actually – You end up you know, at audible.com slash podcasts, I think, something like that. Right. But, um, yeah, okay. I use redirects for the podcast URLs because um, – and the reason I use a redirect is because uh, I may host the – so a podcast is an RSS feed. And I move the RS. Sometimes I have in the past moved the RSS feed to different servers for for various reasons. Mostly because I want to be able to do that should a server get uh, go down or be overexpanded or whatever. So if you go to, for instance, the the nominal URL for Security Now, which is uh, leo.am/podcasts/securitynow, it'll redirect you to an XML file. Um. And there, and the reason for the redirect is so, again so that I can, I have one URL that's always guaranteed good, and I can move you around if I need to to different locations for that XML file. So should, and I, I do, should not do that. Well, no, I, I do the same thing. For example, on 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 the sixty four k bit versions of Security Now, is I I. Uh, we have we have a URL that looks like GRC, but when the user's browser fetches it, it re- it redirects to you guys, right? And then which gets it from AOL, exactly. So there's redirect, redirect, and in fact, that's how we count uh, podcast downloads. We direct through PodTrack.com and then to the server, whether it's AOL or Cashfly, that provides the bandwidth for the show. Well, and it's, uh, interestingly, I was thinking about this question this um, this morning. 
I also, when I was originally setting up GRC way back in the old dark days, the way our DNS was set up was with a wild card in front of GRC.com. So anything.grc.com took you to the IP of GRC.com. So you could use www.grc.com, just GRC.com, or literally anything. You, I mean, you could just make up something .grc.com, which, you know, I thought, oh, isn't that cool? Well, I don't know how or why, but we, over the years, we accumulated so much, I mean, an unbelievable amount of debris.grc.com. And Google was like finding it. And, uh. and, and I, I, if I Googled GRC.com, I would see all this random like machine names dot GRC.com. So finally I got, I said, okay, this is ridiculous. So I have a re, I, I have a, a redirect now and I, th- or I did for years where anything dot GRC.com redirected you to www.grc.com. And I think. Finally, after several years of like training the world not to use anything but the real names, I then shut off the right. the, the the you know the wild card. But so I've I, you know I've had I I make great use of redirects as well. I mean again, they never go anywhere spooky or suspicious, but um, they are very handy. I, I wish they hadn't been abused, but like everything else that's right. kind of cool and and can be used for gray purposes, uh, they were. They're not going to go away. I mean, there's just a lot of reasons why you would have a redirect, and it's just you know it's 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 just. Uh, it's unfortunate, it, I guess. It can cause problems, which yeah. is, of course, what caused Fred to write to us saying, hey, why can't I get to audiblepodcast.com slash security now? Well, and I appreciate your trying, Fred, and it's okay if you just go to audible.com. We, we will, you know, it's fine. <laughs> we don't have to count every single person. Well, I imagine Fred was, would like to know if his security settings in Firefox are causing redirects right. to break. Or... Norton Internet Security, McAfee. There are a lot of security anybody, programs doing that. Yep, yeah. Anybody that is doing a filtering on, right, on, right. on his browser stuff. Yeah, a lot of security programs do a proxy, and you go through them to get to the net. And at that point, yep. who knows what's going on. Yep. Rene Van Belzen in the Netherlands is worried his drives may be getting too much sleep. I have a Mac and recently bought a shareware utility called Tinker Tool System. I use it. It's excellent. Um, this is Leo saying that. Developed by Marcel Bresnik. In the hard drives tab of the system setup, there's a warning message. Switching off the hard disks of desktop computers too often may reduce lifetime. All right. Now I'm trying to be green and save energy when I can, but I don't want to kill my hard drives prematurely either. So what, Steve, in your expert opinion, is an appropriate period of inactivity to put my hard drives to sleep? How soon should they go to sleep? And this is true on Windows, too. You have that slider. 15 minutes, an hour, never. What's the best for uh, hard drive longevity? I'll tell you, um, I never sleep mine. Um, my feeling is that, I mean, I, I know in the old days, it was when you powered up systems that hard drives failed. They were working the the prior evening. Everything was fine. You said, okay, you know, I'm done. You turn off your computer. You come back in the morning. It won't boot. Well, that's I mean, true that's, of everything. That's true of light bulbs. They always blow out when you turn them on. And that's exactly why is that, well, in the case of light bulbs, it, is there, there's an interesting phenomenon with them. And that is that the, the resistance of the filament is lower when it's cold ah. than when it's hot. So there's an inrush current 
that is the reason light bulbs blow out when you turn them on is they get more power than they're supposed to have during that first instant when right. the filament is really cold. Huh. There used to be a, a an oscillator, in fact. I think it might have been a Winebridge oscillator. I can't remember if that was the one that actually used a light bulb to regulate the the oscillator because of this weird characteristic that as more current went through, the resistance went up, which limited the current. So it was, I mean, a cold light bulb is sort of a regulator all by itself right. as a consequence of that. But, um, so but it anyway, isn't, it isn't the same for hard drives, but it is more stressful when the hard drive is spinning up. Well, the other thing that goes on, given that you are changing, uh, you know, he's just talking about spinning down his hard drives, but turning the whole computer off, of, co- of course, causes it to cool down to room temperature, which may get low at night. Then when you turn it on, you're heating it back up. So now you've got big thermal swings from, from hot to cold and hot to cold. I mean, I I never turn my machines off and I never spin my drives my drives down. I mean, and I'm... I'm sort of self-conscious about it. I've had drives last a long time just by leaving them going. I'm changing all my settings right now. I think they're happier that way. They don't heat up. They don't cool down. They don't expand and contract. They're consistent. And, you know, you may not save power by switching them off and on because of all the extra power used to spin up. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it is a function of... It is a function of what your your duty cycle is of using a computer. If you're somebody who gets on for an hour in the evening to check email, do a little web surfing, and th- and then you know you're sleeping at night and you're gone during the at work during the day, it's like ah, oh, I don't want to tell anybody to leave their machine on 24 hours a day if they're going to use it one hour a day. Right. For me, I'm sleeping, you know. The only time I'm not in front of my computer, Leo, is when I'm sleeping or at Starbucks. Otherwise, otherwise I'm here. And because he goes to Starbucks so often, he doesn't sleep much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's that caffeine effect. So, so no, but that's a good point. You, for power reasons, it, it is it would be a good idea. In fact, I've seen statistics that said if if businesses turned off their computers at night when kid, people went home, it would power hundreds of thousands of homes. I mean, it's a significant. When you when you yeah. think of the millions of machines in use, it's a significant power saving. It really is. And so so what I tell people who are not, you know, massive computer users like you and I, who are literally using our computer when our eyes are open, I say, look, if you're going to if you're going to use your computer again this day, mm-hmm. eh, probably better to leave it on. Yeah. If you are done for the day, at whatever point you're done, shut it down. I mean, I don't, but I, you know, my power bill demonstrates that. (laughs) I leave them, I guess I leave them on. Come to think of it, I do leave them on. I do too. But I have the, but I have had the drives being powered down and you know what, I'm going to now turn that off on, uh, on all the systems. Um, You got to balance greenness with uh, the length of the the drive. The other, the other point I guess to make is that systems last a long time nowadays. We're not, we're not killing off our drives. True, and hard drives are cheap. Yeah. And, you know, Spinrite fixes them when they die, so, so what the heck? Buy a copy of Spinrite, <laughs> and, and then you could turn them off and on again. Uh, Scott Hemeter in nearby Orange, California, is curious about Iron Key's private tour network offering. Hi, Steve. During the Iron Key episode, what was that? That was 136, 135, I think. Uh, your guest explained how it could be used as a tour network. If I recall from way back uh, in Security Now, when we did a whole thing on the uh, Onion Router tour, you said that traditional tour is anonymous but not secure. 
Did I understand correctly that the Iron Key Tor network is both anonymous and secure? If so, could this be used as a VPN? I'm currently using Hotspot VPN as a VPN service. That's $10.88 a month. And Hotspot VPN slows my connection considerably. I'm looking for an alternative. Could Iron Key be that solution? If uh, it can, boy, it would certainly justify the cost of the uh, Iron Key. Is it secure and anonymous? Well, let's let's review a little bit about Tor. Um, Tor is an is a system that was designed for anonymity, and the way and T O R is an acronym that stands for the Onion Router. And if anyone really wants to know everything there is to know about Tor, we did an episode which I, which I really liked because we explained. In I think very clearly and carefully what this onion model is, what is the onion, and how it's possible for people's traffic to be to be routed or bounced from one onion router to the next with the design deliberately created so that no intermediate onion router knows anything about the traffic other than which router it got it from, and which router it's going to give it to. The payload itself is encrypted. It cannot decrypt it. It's not until it gets to the final Onion router, after so many hops, however many you want to configure, that only the last router peels the final layer off of the onion, as it's called, gets the gets inside there the crypto keys, which no prior router is able to access, then decrypts the traffic and puts it out on the net. So the goal is that that no one monitoring that router is able to determine who generated the traffic. However, they are able, if they were monitoring that router, the, that that final onion router where your traffic finally e- is emerging onto the Internet, if somebody were monitoring that router, they would see your traffic. They, they would, they would um, uh, not be able to backtrack it one hop to the next and uh, in, in order to determine – your identity, but at that point, it's no longer encrypted. Now, that's, however, exactly the same with any of these hotspot services. Hotspot uses a, a v, is a VPN, um, for um, which Scott was talking about, where you, his traffic is encrypted from wherever he is to the hotspot network. And at that point, it is decrypted. It's taken out of the VPN SSL tunnel and similarly put onto the internet in its natural form, in its unencrypted by the VPN form. You might still be using an SSL connection, for example, to a remote website, in which case your your end-to-end connection to a, to a website is encrypted. So, for example, if you're using Gmail, we've talked about this before, using HTTPS colon slash slash mail.google.com, then your all of your access to um, Gmail is maintained uh, through an SSL channel. Now, um, subsequent to our talking about the Onion Router network, there was some news about malicious Tor nodes, meaning that bad people were, or people of varying badness, maybe even state-run agencies, were creating Tor nodes 
and monitoring the traffic, which is really not what you expect or want from a Tor node. You would like it to be run by a white hat, by somebody who is pro-anonymity, who's offering a Tor node because they believe in the concept of, of supporting the anonymous use of the internet. Um, so this is what Iron Key is providing. Iron Key has a private Tor network, which which they completely control. So unlike the public normal Tor network, which uses volunteer um, uh, donated Tor nodes that no one is really uh, vouching for, the the Iron Key guys has said, "Look, we're gonna we like the idea. We're gonna run our own." Tor network, and we will allow Iron Key users access to our Tor network. So the 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 Tor client creates a an encrypted a securely encrypted SSL connection to the first Tor server. So very much like Hotspot VPN, your traffic is encrypted. Then it bounces around Iron Key's own Tor servers to obscure the path. That the traffic is taken and then emerges from Iron Key's final Tor node out onto the internet. So, um, so it is secure. The problem is it tends to be lower performance. I I can't vouch for the performance of Iron Key's private Tor network, but I do know that Tor in general is a is a dramatic trade-off between anonymity and performance. That is, you know, using Tor is a very sluggish process, which you are where, where you're trading performance for anonymity because your data is bouncing around around among these servers. So uh, the only thing I could suggest would be to give it a try. If if you have an iron key, um, it is absolutely secure, but it may not be giving you more performance than a regular hotspot VPN service or something similar. Um. And the security is somewhat compromised by the fact that it's all through one company. I mean, the anonymity. I mean, uh, the advantage of Tor is it can be a it's a it's a certain it's whatever it is twenty different completely unconnected people hosting this. So if you know, it wouldn't take one subpoena to catch you. That's a very good point. So in some ways, this really isn't a true Tor network because it's, it's you know, all they have to do is go to. <laughs> Go to Iron Key and say, who is it? And they say, well, okay, it's him. That's a very good point. So, um, okay, that answers the question. I need not go any further. <laughs> Brian Moore in Carls- Carls- Carlsbad, California. Is, are, there, are there caves in Carlsbad? Yeah. Carlsbad Caverns? Yep, yep. That's what I thought. Probably, want- bat- huh? pro- 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 probably bats in the cave, too. Uh, so. yeah. You know, uh, I'm going to, um, actually, as we... As this airs, I will be in Tasmania where they have bats the size of foxes. That's a big bat. That's scary. Brian, yeah. they have scary animals there. There's an ant that can jump two or three meters. Ooh. And its its bite is as bad as a bee sting. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'll stay home. <laughs> and, and I think they have really, like, serious tarantulas oh, as yeah. well. Big, bad spiders. They have uh, snakes. Lots of them. Many poisonous. Brian Moore in Carlsbad, California, where the caves are, doesn't want to create flash trash. Dear Steve, this is a long question. 
I'm going to be reading it. Let me get a drink. Okay. I listen to every security now and love and recommend your show, but I will not buy an iron key unless they make a variation of the project product. He wants them to use a slow down password failure punishment method, not a shiny doorstop flash trash destruction. Let's explain. <laughs> please do. Uh, please do. A few users might prefer flash trash, but many of us don't want e-waste or a shiny doorstop when someone else might try to sneak a peek at our data. This He's talking about the fact that if you try to break open the iron key, it, it destroys itself, right? Actually, he's talking about the fact that if you if you oh, mistakenly if you fail the password, if you yes, yeah. yes. So how many times did he say it's uh, ten times or something? But you can change that. But ten <laughs> failed password attempts, and you got nothing. You got a doorstop. He says uh, a few users might prefer this, but many of us don't want this. It seems far more highly probable for most of us than for someone to guess our password in a million tries. The possi- in other words, that you would not guess it in 10 tries. The possibility created by flash trash where the USB key permanently self-destructs re- requires that I maintain accessible copy of my data in a secondary, possibly less secure backup. This weakens the whole concept. He points out Kingston also does this. Anyone doubting the truth of the severe warnings displayed might use up the counter, and then I wouldn't know until I needed to use it myself. Oh, he's got a point. Somebody tries to break in, tries yeah. it eight times, and then says, oh, well, never mind. Now, you only got two chances. Even if they stop at we really mean it and I have one count to go, I might have two iron keys and I myself might need more than one try or else I wipe out my own data. Uh, But only because of someone else's surreptitious attack and iron keys mistaken use of permanent counters. So so you get 10 10 tries lifetime. Is that right? Oh, no, no. It's 10 tries. And then if you if you successfully authenticate. Um, within within 10 tries, that resets the counter to zero for your next authentication. He says what, what, he, what he'd prefer is timed sequencing. So after two or three failed guesses, the UI replies more slowly. Some, I've, I've seen this happen with other programs. After several more, it goes into, sorry, no more tries into power cycled. So you have to reset the machine. Or even ignore stealth mode, where even a correct password does nothing until power is cycled. True, the attacker now has unlimited time, but we can easy, easily characterize the risk profile. After three guesses, we could require five seconds between guesses. After five or ten guesses, the attacker must physically remove and reapply power or even have a non-conventionally controlled USB host. The rate slows down to one guess every ten seconds. An internal capacitor could provide means to direct detect a repeated attack within 30 seconds. And since there are only 31,536,000 seconds in a year... This would, re- I thought it was 325, anyway. This would reduce the maximum attack frequency to about 1 million per year. And even a very weak five character all uppercase password has 11 million possibilities. The knowledgeable user simply unplugs the device, plugs it back in, and gets two or three more fast guesses before it slows down again. Isn't that better for most of us than these consequences? Thanks for having David on the show. Perhaps their team, if not their competition, has already considered these improvements. So just to summarize, he doesn't like it. he doesn't like it because you only get ten tries, and if an attacker tries eight of them or nine of them, then walks away, you may actually uh, fry your own key. Yeah, I think I, I thought this was an interesting question. Good point. That, yeah, um, the 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 point worth noting is that his, is that his attack model is different from what many other users may feel. I could see users who have a an iron key 
mean absolutely seriously don't want their data to fall into the wrong hands yeah. under any circumstances. Yeah. And so their model is if I lose control of it and someone tries to break in and it's really not me, we're assuming we're not going to get it back when the guy is pissed off after trying eight times and didn't push it over the edge with two more tries, which triggered the self-destruct. So, so here we've sort of created a synthetic situation where somebody is trying to crack it, brings it very close to the point of its self-destruct, and then sneaks it back under our control. Says, Never mind. Uh huh. And then, then you know, we kick it over the line. So, I mean, I, uh, I don't know. I thought I thought it was worthy of discussion, and it's a sort of an interesting issue. I know that because I have so many different passwords, there are systems that I use. For example, well, I mean, many many OSs adopt this slowed down logon approach where if you miss the first couple then you have to sit there and wait for 10 or 15 seconds and it's like you know it's annoying when i'm trying to remember which one of my many passwords i used um but it's sure better than having the, the hard disk wipe itself so you know it's like i i can also appreciate this notion of of slowing it down i do think however that the typical model is I have lost my iron key. I absolutely don't want anyone to have access to it. Remember that I, I talked, I think it was last week, maybe it was the week before, um, I talked about the the sort of the, the annoyance of a non-iron key solution, which I, I myself use, my little four gig, little tiny Kingston uh, RAM that I like so much, my little thumb drive where I use TrueCrypt, it's sort of uncomfortable that somebody who can't provide the password can still have my data in encrypted form. That is, it's a almost four gig file that is, you know, it's just pseudo random data. It's like, okay, well, they can't do anything with it, but it's like, yeah, but they could still copy it and and have it and keep it and then, you know, be poking away at it. And I have to say, yes, but it, you know, they really, 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 really can't do anything with it. I mean, that's the whole point and the strength of TrueCrypt is it is really, really good encryption, but it's still annoying that they can have the file and IronKey prevents them from ever getting the file, you know, the raw data off of it under any circumstances, right up to and including killing itself. Now, I should point out that you shouldn't only have one copy of your data on your iron key anyway. Correct. And that was the point he was making. And the point that, that David, the founder of iron key made is that, you know, they provide a backup service. I don't think I would use them, but I would certainly want to keep all of that critical data. I mean, basically everything I'm doing with my key, for example, my, in my own case is I'm using it as, as, as you mentioned earlier, sort of as a sneaker net, I'm using it to shuttle stuff back and forth this morning. In fact, I was working on some outlining stuff and I, on my laptop and I copied it to my key to bring it back home I mean, I brought the laptop too, but I want then I wanted to transfer it to my main machine, and it was just easier. Sometimes I'm doing that with with Amazon's S3 and Jungle uh, Jungle Drive, Jungle Disk, um, or sometimes I use my key. So I've I've always got another copy of anything on my key. Right. I I, I think that anytime you have one copy of anything, you're you're going to lose it somehow. 
Yep. And the point of all this encryption is not that it's your only copy and this is a you know special, highly secure storage, but that if you have carry this key around and you lose it, that you're protected. And that's the real point. Exactly. I, I am the kind of person, though, I have to say, who would forget his password, enter it 10 times. I can't. I I almost have to call my bank every time I want to enter the bank site because I try three times and the bank locks me out every time. <laughs> so there you go. A listener named Steve in Florida. Good name. Wants details. Steve, says Steve, in describing your newly built Windows XP system, you said, quote, for example, I've got every unnecessary process stopped so that when it boots, it uses 131 megs of RAM. So, which are unnecessary? I've used BlackViper.com's list of services and disabled about 20, then found I might need one or two. It's a pretty good site, but I'm sure we'd like to know your list of what we can disable safely for a given setup. Um, that's what Black Viper does. You have, you know, gaming, standalone, home wireless network with fax scanner, wireless laptop, desktop, hardwired, a router, and also acting as print server for free stranding printer, etc. Fewer unneeded services equals good. So what do you think? Do you have I a use, do you have a list? I use blackviper.com. There you go. B-L-A-C-K-V-I-P-E-R dot com. He's the guy. Yep. I uh, When I was doing this, I poked around. I think I first learned of Black Viper when I was up with you, Leo, in Vancouver a, a few months back. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And uh, I'm very impressed with his work. I did. I looked at some other sites. I, I also merged it with all of my own experience, although I don't have as much experience with XP as I do with Windows 2K and, and NT and, and you know er, earlier Windows. But I found Black Viper's advice to be exactly correct. Um, I don't think I've, if basically I used it as confirmation, but there are some weird services that it's like, uh, what the heck what does do this do? do? Yeah. And it's, it's, so it's useful to use, you know, somebody who's experimented with it, who certainly had lots of feedback. And this guy is known for his, his service disabling site. So certainly people are writing back to him and giving him feedback. So blackviper.com is what I use. And uh, it's it's terrific. It was gone for a while. I was very glad when he came back. He does it for Vista too. Matt in Virginia asks, how secure is SSL VPN? Steve, I have a question about VPN security, which I've researched extensively online. Of course, we talked a lot about it on the show uh, some episodes back. He says, you're my only hope. Does an SSL VPN such as that offered by Ytopia or Hotspot VPN, or I might add, Astaro, protect non-browser activities. In other words, when I check my email through a desktop client, not webmail, with an SSL VPN enabled, will my login info be sent through the VPN tunnel and therefore be secure? Will the contents of the email be downloaded to the client securely? I found that IPsec and LLTP are generally not options because their ports are often blocked by hotspots. What do you think? What do you say? Thanks for your help. Yeah, I mean the a VPN is secure, absolutely secure, so long as all of your traffic goes through it. I'm I'm a little uncomfortable about the way OpenVPN works because it uses this a, a routing table and sort of dynamic changes to the routing table in order to hopefully route all of your traffic through the open vpn interface but it's it's finicky configuration wise and it, it makes me a little bit nervous um it but, sort of seems open vm is not the only one that can do ssl vpn that's that's totally true right. and so you know any well designed ssl vpn you know should route all of your traffic through the vpn 
What is SSL VPN? Well, okay, we've talked a lot about HTTPS, you know, the, the, the protocol used for a browser to connect to a remote server. SSL stands for Secure Sockets Layer. It was originally designed by the Netscape folks when they wanted to add um, cryptographically strong, secure connections between browsers and servers for the purpose, for example, of allowing people to transmit their credit card information to a to a web server through their web connection um it has evolved uh through several versions ssl is now at version 3.0 and it's also sort of morphed into tls which is transport layer security um which is sort of the sort of the formal official name now although it still goes by ssl just because that's how it was born um and essentially, it is a it is a secure certificate based, um, you know, strongly authenticated, um, strongly encrypting point to point connection uh, that can be trusted as long as it's all set up correctly. So uh, when we talk about SSL VPN, we're merely saying that the VPN technology is you, you can use different security technologies like IPsec or LPTP that you're, you're using SSL instead of IPsec. Exactly. Um, SSL, so it secures the whole thing. It's not that it's the SSL for your browser. It's it's a it's a it's an encrypted tunnel using SSL for all traffic for all of your internet connection traffic. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And whereas, for example, HTTP, which your browser uses, even though you may have a, a secure connection from your browser to a remote server, all. I mean, if you have no other VPN or security, when you do email, it's not going through right. an SSL connection unless you've got email configured for secure connections, which right. you can also typically do. Right. So, and and SSL VPNs are are often more 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 robust in in mobile environments, exactly as Matt says, because, for example, IPsec and LLTP, as we discussed very early on in Security Now, they use well-known ports that are not, um, for example, port 80 or port 443, which which browsers use, or or other ports. They use well-known ports as part of their protocol, which many people who don't want VPNs to be used can block. Um, as he says, they're generally blocked at hotspots. Right, right. You can't block SSL because uh, then people wouldn't be able to go buy stuff on Amazon. For exactly. Yeah. Uh, Kyle Hasegawa in Tokyo, Japan. Nice to have you, Kyle, listening to the show. Is wondering about quantum crypto cracking. It just sounds good. Dear Stephen Leo, thanks for the great show. You always mention the astronomical times it would take to break strong encryption using even the largest clusters or the fastest silicon transistor-based CPUs. But what happens when government agencies begin to use quantum computing? Will the trusty TrueCrypt be worthless against protecting ourselves against oppressive state agencies? This is a question, actually, I've asked quantum computing experts. Uh, and, and some of them, in fact, use as an example that, yes, it would be easy to break. It's a little early days, though. Uh, yeah. Well, not only is it early days and quantum computing still doesn't exist yet, and we're not even close to it existing yet, but it's re- currently 128-bit keys, uh, symmetric keys, 128-bit symmetric keys are are considered 
incredibly strong. I mean, here I am talking about astronomicals again, but but 64-bit keys are no longer considered safe. But remember that every bit we add doubles the complexity of the key. So when we add another 64 bits to the 64 bits we had before, I mean, 64-bit keys were were considered strong for a long time. I mean, they're still strong. That's still a lot of bits. But we've doubled that to 128, unless we're using 256-bit AES, where we've doubled that to 256 bits. I mean, and and these numbers are huge. So, yes, if and when quantum computing actually happens, it's going to be way faster than silicon. But I still don't think we're going to have a problem with either 128-bit or 256-bit encryption. This is, I mean, really, really astronomical. Well, but that's, I guess, the point of quantum computing is that you go from bits, from on-off binary bits, you go to three-state, four-state, or, you know, uh, uh, systems, which has that same astronomical, you know, geometrical factoring. So these are these computers. If you're right, and it's t- it's pretty theoretical. <laughs> there, there are companies who claim they've built simple quantum computing uh, computers. But if let's if this were to happen, you'd have that same kind of ask, you know geometric jump in computing power as well. Yeah, but, but okay, but geometric and astronomical. Uh, <laughs> okay, I don't know. Uh, yeah, it is. I can understand where the question comes from because this is an example that quantum computing uh, proponents use. Yeah, we'll have lots we'll of notice. Yeah. We'll we'll, yeah. <laughs> we'll let our users know uh, with, with plenty of time when they need to go to five twelve bit uh, encryption. Well, but if you're if you're paranoid about the government, those are the first people who are going to use such a thing if it works. And you may they may not warn you. <laughs> the I don't think the NSA is going to say, uh, guys, we've got quantum computing now. You might want to double the strength of your keys. Just want to let you know. Just yeah. want to give you a little heads up. Chip Mason, I like the name, from Raleigh, North Carolina, wants to revisit the good old PC versus Mac security question. Steve, I'm a longtime Windows user, and while I've used Macs over the years, generally Windows is what I end up using due to legacy software and, you know, the amount of money I've spent on software. I recently listened to six hours of security now, including episodes discussing nasty banking Trojans and other issues, and that got me thinking, maybe I should just switch to Mac and be done with it. But my concern is Mac doesn't have these issues primarily because it doesn't have the market share to attract hackers. I feel that Mac will get its Trojans and viruses sooner or later. But is that so? Is there something inherently more secure about Mac with its BSD Unix mock kernel under the covers? Actually, it's really BSD Unix and mock kernel under the covers. I know Unix protects root and limits permissions very well, but does... This really means viruses and Trojans won't ever be a problem on Macintosh? I'm guessing it would be my luck to invest heavily, I might add, as Macs are pricey. They're not that much more pricey. I think really it's more getting new software that's the investment. And then find the same issues showing up on a Mac that I want to escape on PCs. In other words, is it safe to move to Mac or is it just going to, are the problems going to chase you? And there's the question. It's a good question. Um, I know... Leo, that I turn my my little Mac on an hour or two early every time we're going to be recording in order to give it the chance to update itself. Um, this morning, I had a 50 megabyte OS update and a 39 megabyte Safari update. Right. 
um, that was 80 plus patches to the Apple OS and 13 patches for Safari. Um, I'm seeing, for whatever reason, a lot more of this security updating happening on on my on my Macs than I have in years past. Um, my sense is that Apple is staying ahead of the curve. That is that that again probably because it's a less large target than than Windows and Microsoft. I think that the actual incidence of exploits of these vulnerabilities is still substantially lower than it is the case for for Windows. But uh, there, I don't think there's anything inherently different from from the Mac in terms of its you know some fundamentally more security um, than over on Windows. And, and it's worth noting that um, there were like 40 problems that were patched uh, at the at the end of last year. In addition to the to the um, 80 that just got patched, and I looked at a breakdown of them. Half of the vulnerabilities repaired by Apple are in open source applications. Um, and Apache had 10 advisories. Uh, the AV had nine. Uh, uh, MIT's um, uh, uh, technology had four, and PHP had 10. And the, so the other half were found in Apple's own applications or components, with that first half being an open source. So, you know, I mean, it is. We know it is difficult to write really, really um, uh, exploit-proof software. And I, I think, you know, Apple is in the same boat that, that Windows and applications are in the same boat that the OSs are. And that is people are, you know, they're, 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 the ante is being upped. It's, there's increasing value behind cracking into software and it's the you know the eternal cat and mouse game. I will say that I mean we still have yet to see any big exploits on the Mac side for whatever reason. Well, you know, and I and I think that the Mac, and I've said this before on our podcast, I think the Mac does benefit from the horrible history that Windows and Microsoft had. I mean, Microsoft now finally has a clue it took them a long time an amazingly long time to have a firewall running in windows by default the second they did that the second service pack 2 came out for xp everything changed well then you know the mac learned that lesson much with much less pain than microsoft did so it will probably always have a better a better reputation than Windows, and it's going to take a long time for Windows to shed the reputation. It probably doesn't deserve now as much as it as it has it because you know Microsoft getting serious about security. We see that as an event in the not too distant past, rather than it always having been the case. Uh, yeah, I'll also say that you know it's Microsoft suffers because it's an old operating system, and it is Microsoft has always attempted to preserve compatibility with legacy hardware and software to the degree yep. that you do that you compromise your ability to make a truly secure operating system apple probably because it had less market share has been very quick to abandon legacy hardware owners and legacy programs they've done it before they they recently did it with a move to intel and by by that way you know it's a newer operating system so by their willingness to do that i think they're also 
saying we're willing to to, to do a to take the hit and be more secure. So, right. uh, you know, I understand why Microsoft doesn't do that, um, but maybe if they and well, look what happened with Vista sixty four. You know, well, and a perfect example too is we've talked about Vista when we were covering the security of Vista. One of the things that we we ended up making very clear was that Vista has a ton of fundamentally sound new security technologies, which they have had to deliberately neuter for the sake of backward compatibility, exactly as you were saying, Leo. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's, that's the tough one. I think ultimately it comes down to that. Certainly Apple's less of a target because there's fewer machines installed. Hackers know Windows. They know how to attack Windows. And there's more profit in attacking Windows. Um but I think they also benefit because they're willing to to perhaps be a little less less secure. And, and the fact is, you know, th- th- there was a comment about how app Macs are pricey. Of course, that that again, that's history. That's really not true today. So it is the case that that hackers hack the machines they own. Right. They don't. They don't hack machines they don't own. Traditionally. People were receiving Windows machines for Christmas. They had them at school. You know, they, the hackers had Windows. Now the hackers have Macs, and so we're beginning to see more Mac hacks. Right. I don't think you're going to see a massive change in market share for Apple, however. And, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, it's market share is going up, but you're not going to see. Apple's never going to be more than 10, maybe 20% at best. Not for years of the market. Which is good for the Mac people. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> It is. You're not going to be the dominant operating system. It's just not going to happen. John Hurst in New York City has a question about Iron Key. He says uh, the rep from the company that, well, that was our guest a couple of uh, episodes ago, said they plan a number of improvements for the near future. Will the buyers of the current Iron Key device be able to update or will they need to buy a new Iron Key? Well, I asked him that because I was wondering. Yep. And he said they'd be updatable. Yep. I wanted to make that very clear. The The question had been asked a number of times. And so I finally said, OK, let's make sure everybody knows. First of all, of course, this was not a rep. This was the founder and the CEO and chief techno bottle washer guy. I mean, you know, the, absolutely the guy. Talk to reps <laughs> ever. <laughs> and and uh, and we did make it very clear. We said, will the, if we buy the keys now, will all this cool next generation stuff be retrofitable? And David said, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Which was really encouraging. Really. Neat. Yes. Justin Gerard lurking somewhere in the USA wondered about Firefox preaching. Hey, Stephen Leo on Windows Weekly. I heard about how Firefox was gobbling up. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say preaching? I misread it. I, there's a C in there. You know, it's interesting. You take out the C. It is preaching. He said pre-caching. On Windows Weekly, I heard about how Firefox was gobbling up tons of memory by using pre-caching. Caching. And that is in version 2, by the way, not in version 3. So I was wondering if Firefox pre-cached a link with an exploit in it. Oh, this is interesting. Could it exploit the machine even though I didn't click the link? So pre-caching is you go to a website and it, it, it loads, starts to load all those other sites that are on that website before you click them. He wonders if by the very virtue of the fact that they're loading those pages, could the exploit be triggered? Keep up the great podcast. I hope to be like you someday. Aw, Justin Gerard. He's always oh, Gamer's Edge. That's actually a great podcast. Well, it's, I'm glad to hear that because he's also the neat, I think he was either 12 or 13, yeah. uh, who who had the um, the the Best Buy computer guys, what the the Geek Squad guy came out and I think ran a copy of Spinrut that he oh, didn't own. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was funny, too, because I used GRC's site-wide search. I put Justin Gerard's name in and, blink, there were the, I got three hits on 
on his name thanks to Elaine's transcribing it. So I was able to remind myself that, yeah, that's who I thought it was. Yeah, Justin's so, a great guy. Great kid. Yeah. Who, who will undoubtedly succeed us and do better. Well, to answer his question, um, it's a really great question because uh, exactly as as you said, what, what Firefox is doing is it's going and sort of going out and pulling in content that are referred to by the pages that you are the, by the page that you are viewing. The good news is, though, that it's not until the page is displayed that, for example, JavaScript is invoked, that active scripting comes into play, that the images of of the page are run through the image rendering and it's the image rendering that can cause you know malicious jpegs or pngs or whatever to um, to to get exploited so it's almost certainly the case that the pre-caching would not ex- expose people to exploits from linked pages that you did not click on but uh, it's a really great point yeah so they so it doesn't get exploited until you click on it doesn't get happy. It doesn't run. And I was curious, uh, Leo, because I did not listen to that episode of Windows Weekly. Um, apparently, it's what filling up its cache with pages you never visit. Yeah. So it, 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 people had noted in the past that Firefox too had, takes a huge memory footprint, and it's because it's loading these pages. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know, I think that's bad net behavior. Frankly, I don't. I think you're using bandwidth you sh- you should not be using. Yep, it does speed up browsing, of course, and uh, there have been programs that have done this in the past for years. People, you know, had programs that would do this. I, I and it, I believe it is behavior that they have stopped in Firefox three, which makes it more reliable, reduces the memory footprint, and you know what? I have to say, everybody has broadband now. It's not that much faster. Yep. Hudson Seiler of Janesville, Wisconsin, has a cautionary data recovery message for our listeners. Steve, he says, I recently bought a dead and broken Xbox 360 hard drive. I took the drive out of its proprietary Microsoft mounting mechanism. I guess once you do that, you got a standard SATA drive. He utilized Spinrite on it. Spinrite not only allowed the drive to boot, but to my astonishment, whoops, it completely recovered the data of the previous owner. I, of course, <laughs> immediately deleted it, reformatted the drive, and it works great. Thanks, Steve. However, listeners of security now should grasp the imminent security risk of having your gamer tag stolen. Oh, that's a good point because it contains your debit and cre- or credit card information. Also, for security, store your gamer tag on a 360 memory unit. That way, if somebody does get your drive, at least they can't get your credit or email information. Spin right rocks. Boy, that's I didn't even think about that, but that's true. Your gamer tag is on there and password. Yep. So I thought that was a great thing Thank for, uh, for Hudson to mention. Thank you, Hudson. Reminding me. You know, when you send your Xbox 360 in, Microsoft says, detach the drive. Do not send us the drive. But if you were to, uh, you know, sell the drive, that would be, or your Xbox, that would be an issue. I want to mention Audible.com before we get to question number 12, our cool Firefox add-on tip of the week from Chris in, in Wellington, New Zealand. Um, Audible.com supports this podcast and all our Twit podcasts through advertising. And if you'd like to support us and support Audible, I think it's a good thing to do. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash security now. And you can sign up for Audible. And if you're not already a member, you will get a, a credit toward a free book. I think this is a very good way to find out if you like books on tape. I, you know, I we've had great success with this. And I think it's because anybody who listens to a lot of podcasts is already ready to listen to content, audio content. You're kind of predisposed towards that. Uh, some people say, oh, I don't like listening to books. I really like to read them. You know what? As my eyes get older 
As I spend more time in the car, at the gym, gardening, places I cannot hold a book, I truly treasure the ability to listen to books on audible.com. You can listen on your computer. You can burn CDs for your car. I put them on my iPod. They work on iPhone, iPods, Kindles, a lot of, I think, hundreds of different devices. Um, And there are tens of thousands of books. Last week, I mentioned Philip K. Dick. They have really upgraded the science fiction collection. And I highly recommend Flow My Tears, the policeman said, unabridged, one of Philip K. Dick's best books. I don't know if this one's been, so many of his books have been turned into uh, movies. I don't think this one has, but I'm sure it's about to if it hasn't. I'll read you the summary. Pop star Jason Taverner is the product of a top-secret government experiment that produced a selection of genetically enhanced people 40 years ago. Unusually bright and beautiful, he's a television idol beloved by millions until one day all records of his identity inexplicably disappear. Overnight, he's gone from being a celebrity to being a man no one knows. (gasps) And in a police state, having no proof of your existence is enough to put your life in danger. Dick really was writing great science fiction, but science fiction with important political and philosophical points. And that's why I love his stuff. That's why so many movies have been made about, it, about his stuff. It's not just, you know, flying cars. This stuff is, is he was uh, well ahead of his time. Highly recommend Flow My Tears, the policeman said. It's unabridged. It's available from Audible, read by Scott Brick, who's one of their best readers. A great science fiction, especially for me, works well on Audible because it's visual. And now you would think an audiobook visual? No, there's something about it. It triggers a part of your brain. I often think I have seen an audiobook that I've, I must have, it must have been a movie. There's just something about it that just, it really gets into that part of your brain. It is such a great way to get your reading, get, get extra reading in. Highly recommend audiblepodcast.com slash security now. If you're already an Audible member, this would be a great one to take a look at. It's such a good book. And uh, they, they've now got most of the Philip, Philip K. Dick stuff. Have you read any of his stuff, Steve? Uh, I'm trying to think. I it's, know I read several of his novels. It's sure. not your type. Of, you, I know you like hard sci-fi. You know the, I, I do. It's You're right. It's a little bit sort of wacky. It's more me. philosophical, and it's definitely you know wacky. I don't know if that's quite <laughs> the right word, but it, it's definitely more. Um, it's not, it may not be your style. But it's certainly, I love it. But see, I love all kinds of science fiction. I'm still reading, God, it's long. The uh, <laughs> the, the Philip K., you know what I'm talking about, the Hamilton. Uh, oh, I, I wore Hamilton. Leo, it is, it, with Joshua. Yeah, what is the name yep. of it? It's uh, it's the Night's Dawn Trilogy. Night's Dawn Trilogy, that's it. Yeah, and I'm only boy. about, I've been reading it for a month, and I'm only about <laughs> a third of the way through. This thing is really long. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, it is long. I, I, this is one where I, I have it on my Kindle. And I, ju- I wish, I wish there were an audible version of it, but who are they going to get to read it? It would be, you know, some, somebody young, somebody, somebody with a lot of energy because it'd be hundreds <laughs> somebody of Somebody with a lot of time on their I hands. I wonder how long, I mean, you know, some, they do have, you know, things like Bleak House, very long Dickens novels that are 20 and 30 hours, but this has got to be more than that. Um, there was a, speaking of the Kindle, there was a blurb on Amazon site that I happened to notice uh, late last week, saying that they are just about caught up. I saw that. Yeah, they have. Yep they've they've been ramping up production. They hope within a couple of weeks to be able to announce that they'll be able to ship Kindles the same day they are ordered. But they have been backordered backordered ever since they first appeared uh, in early November. Now I have to wonder if that's a marketing thing. I mean, can they really be selling that well? 
or maybe they just don't have the capacity, the manufacturing capacity. But could you think they're really selling so well they can't keep them in stock? Is this like the Wii where they're selling millions of them? We haven't seen any numbers. I would love to. I would love to have some numbers. Yeah. Don't know. I, you know, we both agree. It's clunky in its form factor, but it's because of the wireless. It's such a great way to get. Things. Oh, Leo, I am so addicted. I mean, it is my constant companion. Yeah, me too. Me too. That's what I read. Uh, in fact, my daughter was just reading Confederacy of Dunces uh, by Peter O'Toole. Peter, is his name Tool? Anyway, it's a great, it's a book. It's actually a sad story. The guy wrote it, uh, killed himself before it was ever published. His mother shopped it around and made somebody publish it, and it won the Pulitzer Prize. Wow. But uh, yeah, it's an amazing story. Um, and I, I'd read it years ago and I'd forgotten about it. And you know what I'm just going to do is I'm going to download it on the Kindle and bring it to Australia with me. Instead of buying it now, I, instead of buying books, I say, oh, good, I'm sure. Let's see if I can download this. And they're pretty yep. good. They've got a pretty good collection on there. I think they're about 120,000 books now. Last wow. time I looked, they were, they were 90 at the Kindle's release, and they, so they've added another 30,000 since impressive. then. I haven't checked to see if they have it, but I bet they do. Anyway, um, just to recap, audible.com, audiblepodcast.com slash security now. Our book of the week, Flow My Tears, a Policeman Said, by Philip K. Dick, highly recommended. Uh, but also Audible's highly recommended, no matter what you want to read. This is, this is the way to read your books. Audible.com. Thank you for their support. Now, our final question. It's really a statement from Chris Noble of Wellington, New Zealand. He brings us our cool Firefox add-on tip of the week. Hi, Steve. Just finished listening to your latest Q&A episode in which you discussed the problem of not knowing the URL uh, with which a form is being submitted or to which a form is being submitted. For instance, is it secure or not? But there is a Firefox extension, he says, just for you, called FormFox. Have you take Have you checked it out, Steve? No, I haven't. But I just I posted the link because the way he describes it, I thought, hey, this is a very cool. Well, I'm going there right now. I'm, uh, let's see. Will it install? Yes, it will install in my beta version of Firefox. Do you know where your form information is going? This extension displays the form action, the site to which the information you've entered is being sent. In any place where you can enter data from search boxes uh, to order forms, just mouse over the form and it will say this is if, where it's going, including the HTTP or the HTTPS, so you'll know immediately if you're going to a secure server or not. Yeah, that's cool. I think that's very, very cool. I mean, I, I, you could, I mean, I could easily wish that browsers just did this by default, is that you, you mouse over the button and a pop-up tooltip gives you the URL and maybe color code it, you know, green if it's HTTPS and and red if it's not. Just you know, as uh, some additional quick verification that it'll be a it'll be a secure access when you press the button. I thought that was a, a you know a really nice little add-on for Firefox. Yeah. I want to let our listeners know. It would also be useful if they were routing it through somewhere like say you know, double click. <laughs> exactly. He says I've used this. It works a treat. The form's destination. URL is revealed in a little text pop-up when you mouse over the button. A very nice solution for security-conscious Firefox users without having to dig through the source code. Thanks for the podcast. Keep up the great work. Thank you, Chris Noble. We love tips as well as questions. How do people uh, submit or ask their questions? They go to grc.com slash feedback. And there is a web page form that they can put their question in. Telling me who they are is optional, although we like to have that so we can, you know, for example, that Chris uh, is named Noble, Chris Noble in Wellington, New Zealand. He volunteered that information. And so that uh, is fun 
to share with our with our listeners. So I appreciate yeah. him sharing that with us. Very cool. GRC.com is a great place to go to for your uh, security software. There's all sorts of little uh, uh, utilities, really fun stuff. Of course, the world's famous Shields Up. People go there to test their router. Uh, first thing they do when they set up a new router, go to Shields Up at GRC.com. And while you're there, don't forget Spinrite, the world's best, the finest, the must-have Hard drive recovery and maintenance utility, grc.com. We also have 16 kilobit versions of this show there for quick download. Um, Elaine has the transcripts up there so you can read along. It's just a really great place to go. When, By the way, when they do the transcripts of these Q&A sessions, Elaine just puts the entire question in its entirety so you can just read it exactly as it as it is. Yep, she asked me for the text so that she can spell everyone's name right, and then I realized, hey, you know, Just paste the, it. <laughs> the, the text is there. Use the text yeah. to save save on typing. Don't don't read Leo's fumfering around. Just put the whole text right in there. <laughs> Steve, we're uh, we're done with this episode. That's great. Next episode next week. Uh, I'm still going to be in Australia, so we're going to pre-tape. What yep. do you What do you want to talk about next week? Well, there's been a lot of controversy about, and we've talked about this several times, about the issue of of so-called network neutrality. And a lot of internet engineering is going into looking at what the real problem is with with essentially users essentially colliding with each other. Um, I want to talk about not the politics, because that's for the politicians, as always, but the technology of of congestion and how congestion is handled and how it can be changed uh, to change this. This isn't directly, obviously, a security issue, but it's something that affects everyone. Well, it kind of is, kind of is. Well, and it, it turns out, I, I mean, our listeners, as you were saying, uh, either this time or before, we have smart people. And I think that if they, if, if people understand some of sort of the key concepts behind congestion, because it turns out that, for example, I'll tease people a little bit this week. Um, once you've got a network in place, the cost of using it is the same, whether you don't use it or you use it all until congestion occurs. Mm. It's when congestion occurs that is when you max out. That's when you, you start having a cost associated with overusing it. And it turns out that TCP does not do very well in congestion. And there are other things like like multiple connections tend to abuse the the way routers handle congestion. So I want to talk about all of that and sort of set some context for sort of some engineering and sort of a theoretical context for, you know, the impact of, you know, people using YouTube so much and, and, and downloading, you know, TV shows over the Internet and like what's happening as the model of how people use the net is evolving um, from a technology standpoint. Yeah, you know, I often uh, say that, you know, there's there's two kinds of net neutrality. There's one thing if a company is trying to be anti-competitive and filter out any Skype calls so that they can charge you for their voice over Internet. But there's also a legitimate need of a company to to to, to stop bandwidth hogs. If there's right. four or five guys using BitTorrent to download the entire library of uh, movies out there, uh, you know, it impacts your ability to get decent bandwidth and decent speeds and their ability to make a living uh, you know, selling internet access. So I think there it isn't unreasonable for companies to try to control some of this bandwidth and how it's used. Yeah, I completely agree. And in fact, um, you know, the uh, uh, an old model of a network is the phone system. 
And and we know that the phone system is unable to handle everyone talking at once. Right. During emergencies, when when people all get try to get on the phone, nobody gets a dial tone because right. the system is unable to actually service the number of subscribers it has. Similarly, no ISP is able to provide all the bandwidth simultaneously that they're selling to people because, you know, they use a model for, for how much, how much bandwidth people are actually going to use. That model is being skewed. And, And as you said, Leo, when, when there are some hogs who are sucking out a, a disproportionate amount of bandwidth, then, uh, and I guess I have to use the, the the term hog provisionally because users can argue, hey, wait a minute, my ISP said that I'm I have unlimited bandwidth, so I want to use it. I, I want to get as much as I can. Right. Anyway, it turns out that the way our the way the internet's technology fails in the case of overuse is currently not optimal because it was never designed for what has happened. And right. that's what we're going to talk about next week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, some of it's they're cheap and they don't want to buy more bandwidth or have more connections, but but there's some legitimate uh, need to control as well. All right, good. That's a good subject. We will uh, be back next Thursday uh, on April 10th with a great... Never, miss, never missing a week. Never missing a week. Rapidly pulling away from Twit because <laughs> we miss weeks all the time. In fact, uh, I should mention that uh, you probably noticed that a number of podcasts are not arriving. It's because, uh, except for Security Now, uh, it's because I am in Australia and we're not recording uh, This Week in Tech, Net at Night, Mac Break Weekly. Uh, so we're taking a couple of weeks off. I'm thinking of it as a spring break minus the uh, overconsumption of alcohol. So enjoy your enjoy your spring break. Catch up on the podcasts you've missed there are still podcasts coming out, um, and we'll get uh, – in fact, I'm going to be doing some – I think some uh, – you might check my blog, leoville.com. I should have pictures, blog entries, and even some audio available. Uh, if if I do put out a podcasts uh, or audio from the uh, trip to Australia, I'm going with some brilliant photographers. You know, we're, this is our new Lightroom adventure and some of the greatest people out there. Um, so you can check uh, – if you subscribe to the Radio Leo podcast, that'll get automatically pushed to you. That's uh, – Leo.am slash podcasts slash Leo. That's the Radio Leo podcast. If you, do you know about the Radio Leo podcast? Some people don't. And I should mention, uh, there is one feed. You could subscribe to the individual shows like Twit, Security Now, MacBreak Weekly. But I made one feed. Somebody asked me, well, I'd like a feed with everything that you do on it. So there is one feed, Radio Leo, that has all of the shows that I appear on. And there's also a feed of everything that Twit puts out. Uh, and that you can subscribe to. That's at the, the Twit feed. I don't actually know. The Radio Leo feed is Leo, as I said, leo.am slash podcasts slash Leo. The Twit feed is through the twit.tv site. It's actually a Drupal um, does an RSS feed um, automatically of everything we put out. And I think, let me just check to see exactly what the URL is for that. It's twit.http. colon slash slash twit.tv slash. Let me just see what it is. I think it's uh, slash node. I want to get this right so you, I don't. Uh, let's see. Show info. Let me see if I can find the actual feed. Dag it. It's hidden here somewhere. Twit.tv slash node slash feed. And that will be, what that is, is an RSS feed with everything that comes out on Twit. Everything. Not just stuff I'm on. So there's Radio Leo if you want just the stuff I'm on, if you want every podcast. And that's a good way to make sure you get everything that we put out. 
including blog posts and everything. It's at twit.tv slash node slash feed. All right, enough of that silliness. We'll be back next week with another episode because Steve refuses to miss even one episode. I hope you'll join us. We'll see you next time on Security Now. Security Now.